I encourage you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. I'm going to read for us uh, from verses 27 down to verses 38, but we're only going to look at this morning verses 27 through to 33. Let me read for us Mark 8, starting at verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of God. Of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Forever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, as we look to your word now, we ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you would give us understanding. But Lord, we pray that it would not just end in understanding, but that it would end in response and a deeper devotion to Jesus, a deeper commitment to live like he lived, a deeper commitment to love like he loved. Help us, Lord, now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're uh, living in a day where everyone seems to have an opinion about everything. All you have to do is go on social media and you'll discover that a lot of people have a lot of opinions on a lot of things they don't know a whole lot about. (laughs) And we also live in a day where a lot of people have an opinion about Jesus. There's a plethora of opinions about Jesus. You may run into someone who actually thinks that Jesus is a a made-up historical figure. Yes, there are actually people who believe that, despite all the historical evidence, despite all the amount of historians who acknowledge, even if they're atheists or secularists, they still acknowledge that Jesus was a historical figure. But there are people who just don't believe that. There are people who, are, who see him more as a mythology than actual historical figure. There are others who claim him to be a prophet. For example, the 
the Islamic faith believes that Jesus is one of the greatest prophets, and which is kind of interesting that they actually believe that Jesus is actually going to be the prophet that returns to judge the righteous and the unrighteous. There are also many spiritual New Age people who view Jesus more like a a great moral spiritual guru. And then there are, of course, others who think him to be a fraud, a deceiver. And, of course, there are others who think him to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And there are also others who, I would argue, they believe in Jesus as the Son of God, but it's, it's more of a certain kind of Jesus. It's not necessarily all that the Scriptures convey about him. It's more a Jesus that they've made up in their own mind. See, there's a plethora of opinions and beliefs regarding the person of Jesus Christ. It's really not all that different, if you think about it, from Jesus' own day. Everyone during Jesus' life and ministry seemed to have an opinion about him. Some thought him to be a great miracle worker. The Pharisees believed him to be a fraud, even claiming that he was a servant of Satan. And as this passage reveals, many thought him to be a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And then there were others who also came to believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, as we see here with Peter and the other disciples. So Jesus has just healed this blind man. And remember, he healed him in two acts. At first, the blind man sees with a level of blurriness, and then Jesus touches him again, and he's able to now see clearly. And we saw that this healing was an image of what faith often looks like. There's a a level of blurriness, but in time, and by Jesus' grace, we're able to see more clearly. And that's important for us to see as we look now at this encounter that Jesus has with the disciples, specifically with Peter. Peter and the disciples, they have a level of understanding. They've come to realize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. But there's still a level of blurriness, as we're going to see. Now this moment in Mark's Gospel is really the center of the Gospel. It's it's the major transition in the narrative of Mark's Gospel. It's the turning point in the Gospel. And from this moment... All the events that happens are beginning to move towards Jerusalem. Jesus will begin to make his way to his impending death. And it's as he makes his way that that there are several dialogues that Jesus has with his disciples about his own death and about the true nature of discipleship. And the first dialogue that he has begins here with Peter. So he heals the the blind man and then he leaves Bethsaida, the place where he was, where he healed that man. And in verse 27, we're told that he and his disciples went on to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And while on the way, Jesus enters into a dialogue with his disciples. He asks them some questions. As we see in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? 
So he asked the disciples more generally, who do people say that he is? And in verse 28, we're told by the disciples what the majority of people thought about Jesus' identity. Look at verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. In other words, there's confusion regarding Jesus' identity from the majority population. They don't fully know who Jesus is, but there does seem to be some kind of consensus in that most thought he was some kind of holy prophet. But then Jesus asks a second question, and he narrows his question specifically to the disciples in verse 29. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I've heard your opinions about everyone else, but what about you? What about you? And friends, this question is not just for the Apostle Peter and the other disciples that were there. This question is for every single one of us. It's for, every, it's for each of us. Jesus asks each of us, Who do you say that I am? And how you answer that question, how you respond to that question as an individual has eternal significance. Who do you say that I am? Kids, there are a lot of decisions that you're going to make as you grow up. Important decisions. Who you marry what kind of career you have, where you decide to live, uh, the education you may choose to have. There's, There's a plethora of important decisions that you are going to make. But know this, children. There is nothing more important than the conclusion that you come to about Jesus. It has eternal significance. How you respond to Jesus is the most important matter of your life. So Jesus asked this penetrating question to the disciples. Who do you say that I am? And how do they respond? Well, Peter, most likely speaking on the behalf of the disciples, answered Jesus and said in verse 29, You are the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. That is, he is the anointed of God, the Messiah, the one by whom God will deliver his people and establish his kingdom. See, Peter and the disciples, they're beginning to understand. They're beginning to see. But as we'll see, there's still a lack of clarity in their sight. Remember, Just because the disciples had followed Jesus when he called them at the beginning of the gospel, it didn't mean that they fully understood who he was. In Mark chapter 4, verse 41, after Jesus calms the storm with mere words, the disciples question among themselves who Jesus is. Who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? See, all the way back in chapter 4, they still weren't sure. They still didn't fully grasp that the man who calmed the wind and the seas was none other than the anointed of God, the Messiah. 
But now, here in Mark 8, they're beginning to grasp. They're beginning to see. They're beginning to understand. You are the Christ. But here's an important question for us to ask. How did Peter and the disciples come to understand this? Why now? Why why didn't they understand it when Jesus calmed the storm in the seas? Why didn't they understand it when Jesus fed the 5,000 and then also the 4,000? Why didn't they grasp it? Why have they come to understand it now? Did did they reason it out? Was it through their own uh, intellectual ability, their own insight, their own understanding? No. We've already seen how dumb and blind they've been. It's interesting that in Matthew's account of this story, we're actually given a little more information than Mark gives us. Jesus tells us how Peter has come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. In Matthew 16, 15 to 17, Jesus says this, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Happy are you, Simon Barjona. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It wasn't humanity, it wasn't yourself that came to this conclusion, Peter. No, the reason why you have come to understand that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, is because my Father has shown you mercy. He has allowed you to see and understand who I am. Peter, you've come to know that I am the Messiah because my Father has made it known to you. He has extended grace to you. See, just as I opened the eyes of the blind man, so God has opened your eyes to see that I am the Christ. And friend, if if you're here this morning and you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed of God, the Son of God, then know it's because God has made this known to you out of His sheer mercy and grace. And so Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And in verse 30, we're told that Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one. Most likely because Jesus doesn't want his identity uh, to be revealed yet to the public. Because he knows that most likely the Jews would probably try to, uh, to declare him king. We've seen this throughout Mark's gospel. Jesus often is trying to hide his identity from people precisely because they will be eager to make him king before his crucifixion. Now, though Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Christ, what we see next indicates that Peter's confession, though it's genuine, though it's real, it still lacks a level of understanding. There's a blurriness to his confession. We're told in verse 31 that that Jesus began to teach them. And what was it that he began to teach them? Well, look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
So, so he began to teach them in light of the fact that, that they have discovered that he is the Messiah. He begins to teach them that he, as the Messiah, must suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leaders of Israel, be killed, and then three days later rise from the dead. Now I want to draw your attention to the fact that Jesus says here in this sentence the word must. Must. The Son of Man must suffer these things. That is, it's essential. It's absolutely essential that he be rejected, that he suffer, that he be killed, and that three days later he rise again. This isn't an option for Jesus. This isn't a maybe. There's no other way to turn. Jesus knows this is necessary. Why? Well, I think there are two answers. The first is simply this, to fulfill the scriptures. You'll see often throughout the gospel narratives, Jesus saying that this has happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, the scriptures, he's referring, of course, to the Old Testament, tell us that the Son of Man must go through these things so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures prophesy that the Son of God, the Messiah, would be one who would suffer for his people. And so Jesus says he must do this in order to fulfill the scriptures. The second reason why he must, or why it is necessary, is that Jesus will accomplish redemption through his suffering, death, rejection, and resurrection. The means by which he will accomplish redemption is through his very own death. You see, we understand the Bible teaches that sin cannot, cannot be forgiven unless it is atoned for. Sin must be punished. If God is a just God then he cannot let the wicked go unpunished. And Jesus understands that he is the sinless, sacrificial lamb who will die for the sins of his people. There's no other way for sins to be forgiven and salvation granted. He must, as the Messiah, do this. And so Jesus is teaching them this, and he does so plainly. And how do they respond to Jesus teaching them about his own suffering and death? Well, we get Peter's response in verse 32. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What a moment. Peter had just confessed to Jesus that he was the Messiah, and now he has the audacity to correct Jesus' understanding of the Messiah. Peter thinks he can tell the Messiah what the Messiah is supposed to do and be like. And so he rebukes Jesus for telling them that he must suffer and die. Why does Peter respond this way? Why is he offended by the fact that Jesus is telling him that he must suffer and die? 
Well, Peter and the disciples, really all of Israel, had a preconceived idea of who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. And suffering and dying wasn't one of those things. The Old Testament, especially in the prophets, spoke of a messianic kingly figure, like a warrior king, who would be sent by God to deliver Israel out of exile and liberate them from the oppression of their enemies. He would come and and make judgment on on evildoers and reestablish Jerusalem and God's reign on earth. There was anticipation at this time that the Messiah would deliver Israel from the oppression of Rome. And here's the thing. Peter and the disciples weren't totally wrong. There is an element of truth in their understanding of the Messiah, but it's lacking. The Bible does affirm that the Messiah will indeed do these things. Jesus will one day bring an end to all evil and deliver his people and establish his reign on earth. That he will do at his second coming. But Peter was missing a huge aspect to the Messiah's role. You see, what Peter and really all of Israel didn't understand was that the Messiah would not only be a reigning king, but also a suffering servant, like the one of Isaiah 53. He would suffer for the iniquity of his people. But Peter, he was offended by such a notion No way the Messiah, the anointed of God, could be humiliated and suffer and die. This was an impossibility to the Jewish ears. That's why in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, when when the Apostle Paul is speaking of his ministry, he says this, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That is, we preach a Messiah that has been crucified. And then he says this, That is a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block. They they stumble over the reality that the Messiah was a crucified Messiah. They can't accept it. It's offensive to even suggest the idea that a crucified man could be anointed by God. What is it that Peter's doing here? When he rebukes Jesus, he's trying to dictate who Jesus ought to be according to his own opinion. And friends, this still happens today. People pick and choose what they accept about Jesus and what they don't accept. You know, it's interesting that that what Peter found offensive about Jesus' words is often... Today, what is accepted by most people who profess some kind of Christian faith. See, the the disciples, they found a suffering, servant-hearted, turn-your-other-cheek kind of Messiah as offensive and unacceptable. But a Messiah of power and strength, one who will judge and destroy his enemies, that was acceptable to them. But today... It's often the reverse. Most people who identify as Christians today, they love 
the merciful, compassionate, gentle Jesus, the one who turns the other cheek and sacrificially suffers because of love. They love the meek and humble Jesus. But the idea of Jesus being a righteous king who makes war on his enemies, who punishes the wicked, that's not acceptable today. That's not the Jesus that I worship. My Jesus is, is, is gentle and loving and, 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 and sacrificial and servant-hearted. He's not a king. He's not a judge. He's not a warrior. How arrogant are we to think that we can dictate who Jesus is supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. Jesus will not conform himself to your wishes and demands for how he ought to be. He is who he is. He is both lion and lamb. He is both terrifying and comforting. He is both merciful and just. He is both king and suffering servant. Friend, you have to deal with the real Jesus. Not the one you've made up in your mind, but the one whom you will stand before and give an account. He is the suffering servant, but also the righteous king. And so Peter rebukes Jesus for teaching them that he, the Messiah, is going to suffer and die. It's a part of his mission. And how does Jesus then respond to Peter's rebuke? Well, he doesn't take very kindly to it, to say the least. Not because his pride has been offended, no, no. But because Peter and his disciples need to learn God's ways, which in this context is the way of suffering. You see, Peter thinks that the Messiah ought not suffer, which would also imply that his followers ought not suffer as well. Which is why after this encounter, Jesus begins teaching on the true nature of discipleship, which is, of course, take up your cross and follow me. So Peter rebukes Jesus, and and Jesus responds in verse 33, and this is what we read. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What a statement. Jesus equates Peter's desire to keep Jesus from going to the cross and suffering as the voice of Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Remember, Satan desires for Jesus to fail in his obedience to God. If if he can tempt Jesus to avoid the cross, to bypass it, Jesus will fail in fulfilling the Father's will. This is precisely what Satan tried to do when he tempted him in the wilderness, which Bev read for us. Jesus, look at all the kingdoms of the world. It can all be yours, Jesus, if you simply just bow down and worship me. You can have the crown without having to go to the cross, Jesus. You can avoid the suffering that lays before you. 
Just bow to me and I'll give you all the desires of your heart. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer, Jesus. And through Peter's rebuke, Satan has returned to tempt Jesus. And Jesus will have none of it. Get behind me, Satan. Now notice, after Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan, he then says to Peter, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You you desire for me to avoid suffering and death. That means that your mind isn't set on God's ways, but on the ways of man. Interesting. It's the ways of man that desires the avoidance of suffering. Remember the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? The night Jesus is betrayed? Peter saying, I'll never betray you, Jesus. I'll never abandon you. All the other disciples saying the same thing. And he gets arrested. And what do they do? They flee for their lives. See, in that moment, they were more committed to their own safety than they were to their Savior. It's the way of man, or it's the ways of man, that promotes Power, self-glory, self-preservation, security, safety at all costs. Whereas the ways of God call for suffering and cross-bearing for the sake of others. And Jesus understood that. Jesus understood that the ways of God required that he go to a cross before he ever received the crown. And friends, I think this is so important to hear right now in our society. If there's a voice that tells you that self-preservation, security, and safety is more important than sacrificial, suffering love for the sake of others, it's most likely not the voice of God, but Satan. Satan tempted Jesus with embracing the crown without the cross. But here's what Jesus knew. There is no crown without the cross. And Christian, the same is true for us. I want to say this. There's a lot happening in our world right now. The risk of contracting the the virus, the ever-increasing Hostility towards, uh, uh, sorry, the ever increasing political hostilities south of us that are also at work in our nation, maybe not to the same degree. But there's a level of unrest in our society right now. The, the slowly but ever growing hostility towards Christians who hold to more traditional beliefs. And there's going to be ample temptation. For each of us as followers of Jesus to make safety, security, and self-preservation be what ultimately guides our decision-making. And I want you to know that is not the gospel way. 
Yes, safety and and security matter, but they are highly overrated. We operate as Christians not by the ways of man, but by the ways of God. And Jesus himself demonstrates what the ways of God are all about. It is a willingness to suffer and even die for the sake of others and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's a willingness to embrace the cross if called upon, knowing that the cross leads to the ground. It's interesting when, when, the, uh, when Italy got hit really hard by the pandemic, um, there was a Catholic priest in his 60s that decided to go into the hospitals and pray with those who were dying. There they were allowed to do that. Here in North America, sadly, clergy were not allowed to go into the hospitals. But this Catholic priest went in and he prayed with people as they were dying. And he himself ended up getting the virus and dying as well. And I have no doubt that there were people who would say that that man was a fool. But if he was a fool, he was a fool for Christ's sake. That man displayed the gospel by putting his own safety and security to the side to care for people who were on the brink of death. He counted the cost. He took the path of the cross, not the path of safety and security. And brothers and sisters, Jesus here in this account shows us that he chose to take the path path of sacrificial suffering love for the sake of us. Will we not be willing to do the same for each other and for our dying, broken world? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a Savior who came into this world not in royalty and glory and power and security and safety, but he came and lived among, amongst us. He had no place to lay his head. He was rejected by his own people. He was abandoned by his closest friends. He suffered and died And he did all of this so that we might find new life in him. He did not avoid suffering, but he embraced it for something greater. And Lord, I pray that you would help us living in North America who are so used to security and safety that we would cast down those idols and that we would truly follow Jesus truly follow him to the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.